On this episode, I get to spend some time with our underwriting manager, Jerry Tubbs. You might be familiar with his voice from our intro. He has underwritten thousands of loans in his career and has seen almost every scenario you can imagine. We discuss topics from catching mortgage fraud to how you can package a loan to almost guarantee an approval. Just kidding, but definitely his advice will give you the highest chance to get your loan approved. Listen close as we hear about the craziest loan Jerry has ever underwritten to finding creative ways to originate million-dollar non-QM loans. Welcome to the Million Dollar Mortgage Experience Podcast. Listen in as CEO John Maddox of Fun Loans reveals tips, secrets, and origination ideas to fill your pipeline with million-dollar opportunities. Welcome to the show, Jerry. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. So um, our, all of our viewers, most of them are mortgage brokers. They're uh, people that you know want to learn a little bit about non-QM. Uh, this is a chance for them to really lift up the curtain and you know look under the hood and 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 just to kind of see what's behind a, a loan. You know, like when when uh, when someone's looking at a non-QM file, and I think we talked about this before we started the cameras. Is like for an underwriter, maybe it's like in my mind, it's like they get a present, like they get this present, they gotta unwrap it and see what's in there because you never know what's going to be in in that file like it could be a you know a big you know three million dollar loan it could be a, a smaller loan it could be you know something crazy but I know as an originator um, how many different scenarios I've seen in 21 plus years as an underwriter like I mean you get to see every little detail about this person so you get to look in there it's like you see their dirty laundry you see everything about them like tell us just real quick about um how you got your start in in underwriting um i actually uh started out in sales i was originating loans and uh kids started coming along and i i made a decision that i might want to at the end of the night rather than being in a real estate office at 8 30 at night i might want to be home playing playing with my kid. So uh, it's a good life choice. I, I took an opportunity to uh, stay involved in mortgage business doing that way. Uh, I had a really good track record as an originator uh, getting loans done. Uh, went three years without a denial. So I was doing a lot wow. of underwriting at and the application. You were actually an, your own underwriter. <laughs> I was, I was. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was a natural transition for me. Uh, one of the things that really benefited me and kind of skyrocketed my career was being able to take that ability to structure loans like an originator and not mm -hmm. forget how to do that when I got into underwriting. Interesting. So being able to uh, leverage uh, loan structure as an underwriter and figure out how to make things work versus mm -hmm. how to make them not work uh, is kind of uh, helped me make my mark in the underwriting world. So pretty soon I'm at being asked to manage underwriters and, and contribute in bigger ways because of that ability. That's very cool. So um, in your office, you have on your wall, it says mind-bending mortgage lending. What does that mean to you? Uh, for me, it, it's a reminder that, uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to make the business work for customers, uh, not how to remind them how it doesn't work. And in the coming space, from a place of yes, sort of. Yeah, uh, the really cool thing that makes it fun for me to come ever to work every day is I'm not doing commoditized loans. I'm not doing Fannie Freddie and just right. reminding people how they don't fit into this cookie cutter that those agencies have created. Right. I'm in a space where 
when people uh, when it makes sense that people have the the money and the wherewithal and the desire to to be homeowners or, or or change their financial situation that we've got products that accommodate them even if they don't fit into this uh, cookie cutter that the agencies have created so um, that's fun for me mm-hmm. and because um, you get to use a little more creativity in the process and, and it's not not just like anyone can do it. it's kind of like I think what I almost look at it in it from a songwriter standpoint or from a musician standpoint there's the people out there that can read music and then there's the people that can either play by ear or they can play by just kind of making it up they can just sit down at a piano and just kind of make up something but it sounds good right or they can go pick up a book and read you know read exactly you know Bach or whatever the 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 piece is and they learn how to do it so but often people who can read music have a tough time playing by ear or just yeah. making stuff up or coming up with something new and like so you're saying some creativity i think that yeah. that you know fits in certain people and it sounds like you're not just the kind of person that can just read music or read a uh you know like make sure something fits in the box but you can say well it, you know maybe this makes sense if i do these two different things or you know look at it from a different perspective is that yeah. i would say in, in music i'm a remedial reader you know i can read it eventually but yeah. not very fast but um, when I can play the radio that's in my head, uh, mm-hmm. you lock me in a room and 30 minutes later, uh, if you need a jingle, you're going to have it. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, and I feel the same way about underwriting. Um, uh, there's going to be this mishmash of assets and income and, and property and credit. And you'll look at it. And uh, once you evaluate it, you have an opportunity to say, uh, I can make something out of this. That's uh, cool. I, you know, whether this would fit in this product or I can't do it there, but I could do it there. Or if I, you know, tweak this or paid that off and, and keep molding it until or, you know, almost like turning a Rubik's Cube until those colors start to line up and you can hmm. cross the finish line with a solution. That's a cool way to look at it. Yeah. So I, I don't really like the, the word non-QM just because it's like, what does that even mean? Right. So, but, but I know we call it make sense lending or alt doc or, you know, uh, non-prime, but it's not really not even non-prime because a lot of these loans are, um, you know, good FICOs, good credit, maybe one little things off here or there because they're human. Right. And they don't always pay attention to their credit. You know, some people are paying attention to their business. They're self-employed and they just either the person they've hired to take care of their credit, you know, or, or, you know, it's, it's just something missed or something got missed. And so the credit score is not always perfect, but, uh, you know, what, what about this is, is what we call make sense lending. What do you see is kind of the reason why non QM is make sense lending? Well, I think, uh, one of the things is, uh, sometimes you'll find a disparity between someone's FICO score and their credit performance. And, mm-hmm. and it was something I struggled with when FICOs were first introduced back in the 90s. Um, they were really introduced to create some electronic convenience for what was a newfangled toy in a mortgage business back then, which was LP and DU. Mm-hmm. It was a lot easier to program one box to plug a FICO score in than right. to actually create a computer that would look at a credit report and decide whether someone was credit worthy. And right. one of the first things we ran into then that I still run into today is some people have uh, different attitudes, uh, attitudes towards using credit. And especially with some of the wealth profiles that we see, mm-hmm. we have people that have so much money at their disposal they would never have to use credit. They would never have to borrow money unless right. it was a convenience for them. Right. There's certainly never a necessity to borrow money. And 
those people traditionally that don't use a lot of credit are going to have a lower than normal credit score. And right. it has nothing to do with their ability to repay. Mm-hmm. You can look at a sheet full of accounts they had years ago that they paid on time. So you'll get people with lower credit scores. And by that, I mean someone in the 600s instead of the 700s, let's say. Right. And they've got 10 or 20 trade lines that they haven't used in years. Mm-hmm. And every, every single creditor they've ever uh, had contact with has been paid on time. But they're pulling a 640, right. and someone with two or three trade lines they've used recently might be in the 700s. Yeah. And I would rather lend money to this person that doesn't need the credit, frankly. Yeah, right. And that's what you, you see like sometimes in banks. Like It's like, you know, if you don't need the money, that's when it's the easiest to get it, right? You've got all, your, yeah. all this money in the bank, and you got, you know, like no real need. But when you're like, gosh, I need to borrow another few grand for whatever, they're like, nope, sorry, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so without divulging private information, you know, you've been in this business a long time. I know you've probably got at least one interesting story that you could share about like a crazy, underwrite a crazy borrower, crazy profile, whatever it might be, just uh, something interesting. What would you say? Um, the one that comes to mind almost immediately, and, and to your point, there's there's hundreds. It's like making me pick my favorite child. <laughs> uh, one that comes to mind that was one of the trickiest ones. Uh, I was working for a big bank in New York, and uh, a very well-known former baseball player came in. and Like walked in? Uh, yeah, actually physically walked into, the, into the, bank, to, yeah. to the branch. And when he explained the situation, they're like, uh, we can't help you. We need you to talk to this guy. So he got <laughs> ushered up to my office. Anyway, um, when he left baseball, he was on these extended contracts that continued to pay him years after he played. So he was still at the tail end of these multi-million dollar contracts, dropping money in his lap and hadn't played, hadn't picked up a bat or a glove in five years. Anyway... Post-baseball, he had got successfully involved with some real estate developers, and they began uh, buying up uh, high-rise apartment buildings that had were in disrepair. Mm-hmm. And they would form an LLC for each building, each individual address. They would take the building from a, a bombed-out uh, hole. They would completely rehab it. They would fill it with uh, Section 8 uh, subsidized rentals mm-hmm. and then when this investment was upright it was full of paying tenants they would present that as a turnkey rental opportunity for an investor that didn't want to get their hands dirty with the rehab process and the, mm-hmm. and the rental process and the the numbers were astounding each building could be acquired for 10 rehab for five held you know for another five and sold for 30 wow in the month, uh, the reason I came uh, to pass uh, to even talk to this gentleman is he was looking for a mortgage for his own home. Gotcha. He was moving his family um, away from the city and out where he had grown up, buying a beautiful home, going through the traditional mortgage process, and confronted with the type of things that the traditional mortgage process slaps in your face, which is, I need two years of tax returns on <laughs> all your businesses. Right. At that time, the moment that I met him, he had 60 of these buildings in the pipeline. Wow. About 10 to 15 that were in the acquisition phase. Were these each LLCs or uh, corporations? Every single building was a single LLC. Wow. He had 60 LLCs. So it's a light dock deal. It was, <laughs> it was presented as a full dock 
you know, double year because that's the Man. only type of things that that big nasty bank did. Yep. And uh, and he was. Uh, and this is probably back in the day when you had like physical files on your desk. Yeah. It was, it was digital. Uh, this is this is only a few years ago, but uh, the I you know the idea of a single underwriter tearing through all sixty for both years, coming up with cash flows for uh, a situation where every building was on some different level of spectrum of completion to Man. just bought the building yesterday. Yeah. Uh, got it rehab, but not rented, fully rented and on the market or sold. Mm-hmm. But this process of grinding these buildings through this process, uh, so they get so good at it. Um, it was, a, it was like printing money in, uh, in the two or three times that I, I met, to uh, get some documents, ask some questions, clarify. Uh, this gentleman brought in multi-million dollar settlement checks from buildings that are successfully <laughs> closed, and he's just depositing them in the checking. He's like, here's, here's another one? Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, uh, the solution for us was to, to leverage um, uh, the portfolio power and isolate uh, balance off the LLC's cash flow. So we actually ended up cash flowing all these buildings, but did it at a K1 level, uh, <laughs> added back the millions of dollars of depreciation on all these buildings to show that this man didn't lose $10 million last year. Like it says on his returns. Yeah, but. he actually made $30 million right. and didn't pay taxes on any of it. So, uh, in sounds like a good model. It, yeah, presenting it the right way, understanding those cash flows, knowing what we could add back, what where the paper losses were, knowing what we could do with those loans, we were able to prove that he was an extraordinarily wealthy person, uh, a very good risk for the loan, and we were able to get him closed on his new purchase on time. And uh, last time uh, I, I spoke with him, uh, he was uh, wildly happy and, and still very grateful. That's cool. Were you a fan too? Uh, had never met the person uh, or, or had followed his career. Yeah. But um, uh, at the tail end, um, uh, got him to actually autograph a couple baseballs for our the guys on our exception desk. Nice. That said, uh, thanks for getting me home. Oh, that's cool. That's great. So, um, you know, these kind of deals are, are obviously different and they're, they're, there's a make sense approach to them. But like, how does it, Differ. What's what's some of the main differential or different uh, different points that you could say between agency, government, and non QM? Like, what were some standout things that really kind of differentiate it? I think one of the missions for non QM has turned out to be making it easier for self employed to get money that they deserve. Right. Um, typically, if you're starting a new business, even one that gets traction immediately. You've got to sit out two and a half to three years to have enough of a paper trail with the IRS to be able to walk into a traditional lender and say, I can prove to you I make enough money to afford this house payment. Right. And using products that have flexibility like bank statement loans gives me the opportunity to catch those people uh, once they're already successful, but not make them sit through the two or three years it's going to take to develop a, an IRS-worthy paper trail. Yeah. So we can get people that um, have an immediate need for the money. They have a, a great uh, ability to repay. They're not a big mortgage risk. They just don't have the paperwork they need to satisfy um, those big bad agencies. Right. And I mean, you said, so just right with like self-employed borrowers, I mean, that's something that's trending up, especially like 
you know, more recent. There's a lot of people that are just starting new businesses, you know, people that are going from being a W-2, say, uh, like, they're going from a W-2 job to being a contract employee. So like they get let go or they say, well, we still want you, but we're going to pay you 1099. And, or they've been doing, you know, like say they've been a doctor at, you know, Scripps for many years and then now they're a, a doctor, but they're on their own practice, you know? So it's like, you really are going to say this guy's, you know, risk is much different. I mean, I know, it, you know, going out on your own versus having people walk through your door from a big hospital is different, but you know, they're still pr- similar profession, you know, things like that. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, it's always interesting to see how the guidelines of Fannie Freddie and government just, you know, it, it really doesn't take into consideration the make sense approach. Yeah, you know? They're biased towards wage earners. And yeah. when, when you think about it, uh, self-employed people are still the exception and not the rule. Right. So, you know, I, I I would bet it's an 80-20 type situation where, you know, 80% of us, 90% of us are wage earners. It's that special 20 to 10% of folks that are out there um, doing their own thing. The rules aren't really written for them. And so those exception type borrowers need exception type mentality. You have Mm -hmm. to think about those people aren't going to be living their life just so they can come in and, and make it easy to do a mortgage every, you know, once every seven years when they need one. Right. Uh, they're living their life the way they need to. They're, they're managing their cash flow for what makes sense for their business and their business strategy. It's my job, I feel, to take a look at that, uh, stand back for a moment and go, you make more money than I do. You deserve a loan. Right. How do I tell your story in a way that... Um, that takes advantage of what you've done that is exceptional and and present it in a way that um, makes people realize there's not a lot of risk in this borrower compared to the one that has two W-2s and a pay stub. And, and yeah, because they the, could get fired tomorrow and, and lose their job. Yeah. And then they'll be self-employed anyway, <laughs> looking for work. <laughs> for sure. Well, um, on that kind of thought, uh, what, what can brokers do to better... You know, how can they do a better job at, at getting the loan prepared to be seen by an underwriter like you? Um, I honestly think you need to be a better storyteller. Mm-hmm. If you and I would take the time to type up a paragraph of what does this guy do? How does he make his money? Um, how much money does he typically make? How often does he make it? Um it's so many times I can't tell you where you'll have a very generic sounding business name that really doesn't tell you if this is a, uh, a product, if it's a service, mm-hmm. or if it's uh, you know uh, any other kind of operation. And those type of details help make sense. Um, because then when I look at bank statements, it makes the deposits that are going in make sense. Like, oh, that's probably one of his business deposits because it's the right size, mm-hmm. it's the right frequency. So telling the story, understanding, uh, and I gotta believe, if you're an originator, I, I gotta believe that showing that much interest in your borrower to find out how he makes a living, mm-hmm. it's gotta be a great rapport builder. Oh yeah. So there's a great, reason to do it anyway. Sure. You have a great chance. People like to talk about themselves too. So if you're asking like, tell me how you make money, you know, and they yeah. they want to just talk and you can take notes. I and- would assume you'd have trouble shutting them up. Right. Yeah. Um, but you're going to learn things that are going to help you present the loan to someone like me and uh-huh. help me understand. Cause I'm going to have the same questions from a, a different perspective, which is, 
uh, I need to know how this guy makes money. Yeah. Uh, and you're and, looking at, you're looking at bank statements. So you're seeing all kinds of deposits and some of these deposits, you're like, gosh, is this income? Is it, is it not income? Is it, you know, is it just somebody's transferring money from here to there? And, you know, so yeah, to, to understand that right off the bat would help you from going down some bad rabbit holes and thinking, you know, things that aren't necessarily true. Right. It, it reminds me of a situation I had, um, uh, I had a bar where there was a Schedule C bar, so I actually had tax returns in this, and it wasn't real obviously what he was doing. What was real obvious that it was making a lot of money, and the expense ratio was really almost unrealistically low, so hmm. low that it felt like, could these be fraudulent returns? Hmm. I actually ended up uh, calling the bar, or just I was curious because uh, it looked like it had something to do with precious metals. Mm-hmm. But it's not like you had a storefront where he's buying and selling precious metals. I, I couldn't quite make the connection. So finally, it just broke down. I said, just, if I have permission, can I talk to your borrower and find out? So yeah. I called him up, got him on the phone. Turned out what he had discovered um, is that catalytic converters in mm-hmm. cars have a small amount of recoverable platinum. Really? And he had a process that would recover that. So his day was spent going from auto junkyard to auto junkyard, buying as many catalytic used catalytic converters as they would sell him <laughs> he would recover the platinum huh. and he was so good at it and, and platinum is like, i don't know what it is per ounce but back then That's it was yeah. yeah back then it was a thousand dollars an ounce and he is recovering uh you know uh, pounds of it every month from Jeez. junkyard salvage I wonder he's, if he's still doing it. I mean, there's uh, probably only so many of those. He's probably can... retired by now. He was making a lot of bread when I knew him. Wow. That's a, that's a cool thing. So you went and called the borrower and found out what that, that's kind of what was going yeah, on. Yeah, tell me the story. And then it just made me jealous <laughs> afterwards. So, I mean, that, that makes me think like this. I mean, and I know uh, mortgage lending is not always exciting. Trust me, it's, it's not the most exciting business. But there are times when you get to look and see, you know, some things and hear some scenarios that are, are that actually are exciting in, in a way. Because, you, you know, this stuff is interesting. You actually could probably... I've been doing it for 30 years. And for me, it... It, for me, it was Shark Tank before there was a Shark Tank. Oh, that's cool. Because I would learn how every, you know, especially self-employed, how they found a niche and exploited yeah. it with their knowledge or their first to market or whatever their advantage was. And <laughs> yeah, I've seen, uh, I've had the benefit of seeing a thousand different ways to make money. And that's it's, it's cool. all fascinating. That's very cool to see. Um, you mentioned fraud a minute ago. Um, I, I, it's been a long time since I've heard about or seen fraud in the mortgage business. Thank God. But um, you know, before the before the crash, um, before two thousand eight, there was there was some fraud happening. You know, like forgeries and different things, and using debt appraisers' licenses. I mean, I've heard of stories and stories, but um, you know, recently. Uh, you know, we, we kind of came across something that could look like fraud. I, I know that, you know, someone um, did something, but like, it seems like a loan officer would not risk their livelihood, their potential, like freedom, you know, to go to jail or anything like that. Like, you know, I think loan officers are probably less likely to do fraud these days. And maybe it's borrowers. Like, what do you think? Like, do you think it's a, do you think that starts something that's kind of coming back? Do you think there's more fraud coming or, you know, with these type of loans or? That's a great question. Uh, one of the points you made was, uh, I think most loan officers and most people in the mortgage business have that mindset that it kind of, once you're in the business, you kind of decide well, I really like this. And, yeah. and and I had that feeling very early. It's like, 
I like this. I'm good at it. Yeah. I'm going to do this. And as soon as you have that much um, skin in the game, uh, you are very conscious of, I got to make sure that my behavior doesn't jeopardize this because this is something mm-hmm. I'd want to be able to do. Right. And I wouldn't want to do something that would prohibit me from being able to ever do it again. Right. So that mentality is always on, on my mind. Uh, also, I think the, the longer you're in the business, your personal reputation means a lot. I mean, if... Right. You end up working with other companies that are, you know, because you're selling them loans or uh, appeasing to their uh, their quality process. And if they don't trust you, it impedes your ability to do you know, business with that. So uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, once you've decided this is a business for you and you want to stay in it, it's pretty easy to stay on the right side of what right. to do. In terms of the fraud question, I've been doing this long enough to where I see an evolution in fraud. And believe it or not, uh, in the 90s, when, when I'm managing uh, large underwriting groups in the in you know, where we were at at the time, uh, credit report fraud was our biggest problem. Really? Um, there was a thousand mom and pop credit bureaus. Huh. And it would be very easy if uh, some account that was jeopardizing your loan approval showed up on a, a you know a collection account, let's say. Sure. It would be real easy to call a mom and pop credit bureau and say, I'm not ordering another credit report from you again if you don't get that off of that guy's report because that's keeping us from closing. So there was some undue pressure wow. you could apply. One of the things that solved that was when DU and LP came out and people were ordering credit on their own, uh, untouched by uh, right. uh, uh, an unscrupulous kind of uh, player. Once removed, yeah. Yeah. Then you knew this is the real credit data, blemishes mm-hmm. and all, and what are we going to do with it? And, and with it came kind of some dock relief where... At that point, then the agencies knowing they were getting good data could then start to create relief or yeah, if it's if it's this balance, you don't have to pay it off or it's this old, you don't care, you know, right, right. So they actually, you know, it solved the problem. The next biggest thing we had was tax return fraud. Uh, and once the uh, cooperation was set up with the IRS to get transcripts, mm-hmm. it really took a lot of the tax return fraud away. And, and companies that do a good job of making sure they transcript that information protect themselves from a lot of exposure. Mm-hmm. So you got two big chunks that have been taken out of the industry in, in my lifetime. And also appraisal fraud is probably way low now because there's just, you have to have an AMC, you can't you know just order an appraisal from the appraiser, you can't just, hey, uh, um, I need a 2.2 value, can you do that? Nope, okay, next guy. Yeah, you know, that's how. There was a lot of pressure it and it, it sounded very much like the credit the report credit, pressure yeah. where I'm never ordering an appraisal from you again if it doesn't come in at this. Right. So now that that pressure is gone, I do think uh, appraisal values are a little more solid and computerized tools help as well. AVMs right. have come along so far you that- You can pull up Zillow and Redfin and go, that says it's worth only, you know, million three, but you're saying it's worth three million. Uh, let's see. And then there's no comps. You can like really. You can start to triangulate. Really quick, you know, yeah. you can start to triangulate what your appraiser is saying and what your realtor is saying and what data right. is saying, and start to yeah, it's probably somewhere in here. And there's yeah. And the only thing that we haven't really done in the appraisal world that we need to do is. We need to give appraisers the ability to create a value range rather than a value. Mm. You know, because on any given any given day, depending on how desperate sure. of a buyer you are or how desperate a seller, 
that million dollar property might go for nine eighty, and it might go for a million twenty. That'd be an interesting concept to do a range instead. Yeah. Yeah, cause, and because then you could, as a lender, you could decide, hey, this is the upper part of the range, but it's still within reason. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll I'll do it at ninety instead of ninety five. You know, you could you could play with yeah. that range and get or comfortable. Change the pricing a little bit too. You know. Yeah. You're going to the red, you get into the red zone. You're yeah <laughs> adding a little bit yeah, to the rate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Make it make me interested again. Uh, so the last bastion for me is uh, bank statements, mm-hmm. and um, and unfortunately, it's one of the few pieces of information that we still ask borrowers to provide because we don't have uh, easy direct access to to get the information ourselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are and with the tools that are out there be pretty easy to turn that thousand dollar deposit into a ten thousand dollar deposit and make it look a, yeah. yeah and i think the reason we're, we're possibly even talking about it recently after this evolution of all the other things we've chased out of the business is bank statement loans are now a popular way to, to get right. financing and it's an easy platform to, you know, if you're not getting the answer you want with your bank statements, <laughs> a little Photoshop might change that answer. So right. it's uh, something that I'm sure the industry is going to have to address. Uh, and frankly, there's a lot more technology out there, too, that could possibly address it than there's ever been. So mm-hmm. I, know I see that window closing because uh, bank statement loans are getting so popular right. and um, people aren't going to stand to to get uh, ripped off, uh, you know, using borrower provided information that's not quite on the up and up. So. Makes sense. So we've kind of talked about some of the things you like about borrowers and, uh, you know, just being able to see kind of interesting stories and hear interesting uh, scenarios. But what would you say is your least favorite borrower or type of borrower even? Would it be like a create like crazy income tax stuff, or would it be just maybe someone who's just spending too much money? Like, do you ever get like, you know, like kind of not judgmental, but at the end of the day, like, oh, this guy doesn't deserve credit. This girl doesn't deserve credit because of whatever. Like, do you ever get personal in there? Like, I mean, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but um, I, I don't really have. I can't say that I have a prejudice on you know how people make their money or how they spend it. Um, and most borrowers are pretty, it's amazing how self-disciplined they are. Uh, it always has amazed me when, but even before I figure out what someone makes or uh, doesn't make, they're pretty good about coming up with a monthly housing payment number that's comfortable for them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the challenge for me is figuring out, why do you think that's a good payment for you? <laughs> but then when I get all the facts in, it's like, oh, Big chunk of your income's tax free, so it feels like you make more. Or mm-hmm. uh, that's you have this debt, but you're not having to pay it; someone else is paying it. Or mm-hmm. you know, so there's there's different things at play where sometimes I don't get it initially, and then the longer I work with uh, a borrower, it's like ah, oh, I get it now. Uh, in terms of the, I, I would say the only frustration I ever have with borrowers, and it's fairly rare, is occasionally you'll find a borrower that you've kind of created a roadmap on how to get them from where they are to the closing table. Mm-hmm. And you, but you need this, this and that. Right. And they've decided either from their personal frustration or lack of understanding about the business that, uh, I'm not giving you that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so every once in a while, it's like, you know, you, you try to be patient with people. And I realize uh, it can be frustrating for, 
for some borrowers because they don't go through the process very often. They don't understand right. it. Uh, but I would say uh, if there's a borrower that ticks me off, it's the one that tells me what the documentation level is going to be yeah. rather than the other way around. But. You, know, what are you, you got do? enough stuff. Just yeah. tell me yes or no. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's like, yeah, I don't think so. I think uh, uh, it's a little bit of the golden rule there. So. Yeah, and they always also, um, I, but I gave you everything. You said that was it, and now you want more. And it's like, well, you know, it's like conditions beget conditions. You know, it's like yeah. They just, sometimes, uh, sometimes it raises another question that you didn't think to ask because yeah. oh. That's the answer. But uh, that doesn't happen very frequently. But every once in a while, you get someone that's just had enough. And uh, unfortunately, they're giving up a few yards from the finish line. It's like, mm-hmm. we gotta, we got to get one more, one more furlong down the track. So do you think these loans are risky? Uh, well, no. Uh, the type of loans that we're doing typically have really uh, sexy LTVs. Yeah, they do. Uh, and... Skin, skin in the game. Yeah, when you have a borrower (laughs) making that kind of investment, either protecting an investment they, you know, equity they've already earned in a refi Mm -hmm. or uh, hard-earned money going down for a down payment, that's a that's a big deal. Um, That kind of skin in the game really helps predict uh, what their behavior will be if they ever run into trouble, some life event that keeps them from being able to make the house payment. Right. The hope is as a lender that you'll make the decision of whether or not you could truly afford the home anymore. You know, is this a temporary setback or it's like my income's going to be reduced for a while. This is not the right house for me. Right. And the hope is that you'll take the right kind of action and put the house on the market, grab the equity that you have and make a better life decision for, based on your new circumstances sure. versus, um, dropping the keys in the mail or not making your payments or those sort of thing. So mm-hmm. doing the larger down payment loans, uh, you can see a lot of people that, you know, their intent is to make those payments, preserve their credit, and enjoy that equity. Mm-hmm. And I love working with people with that kind of motivation all day. Yeah, that's true. Um, I just I was thinking about, um, I've been seeing lately people talk about, there's another crash coming, there's, you know, a big downturn, it's due, it's inevitable, you know, and, and I always think about it like, you know, uh, I, I like to look ahead and try to look around the bend, but it's it's never easy to you know have a crystal ball. But you know, knowing what we know about how tight mortgage lending has got uh, has been, and how um, you know all these laws are in place to protect us from getting you know crazy appraisals, to protect us from having fraud, to protect us from to from from really like you know. You know, and then the inventory uh, being being small and and builders not going crazy and and overbuilding again like they did back in oh five oh six like so so what would you what are your thoughts about like a crash you know do you think it's going to be centralized in in I mean I've heard corporate debt's going to be you know something that we got to watch out for that's going to be a, a bubble that's going to pop but as far as like just residential real estate what are your thoughts on that being that we've been so tight. Um. This is going to go into a second hour, you realize. (laughs) I'll I'll give you my very short synopsis on what I feel the crash was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it really gets back to, if you go back to Econ 101 and entry-level college course, supply and demand. Yeah. Traditionally, in the mortgage space, uh, housing, there's a relationship between... uh, housing prices and median income. 
And and that relationship narrows and broadens based on a couple of variables. Um, one would be interest rates. Mm-hmm. So even at the median income, median household income, if the interest rates get lower, you could you could support more house price mm-hmm. with the same amount of household income. Mm-hmm. And if there's only so much real estate inventory out there, there could be a tendency, hey, we can buy a house, the rates are really low, and you get some more bidders out there and supply and demand, there's more buyers than sellers, and it'll drive the price up. Right. Similarly, when rates uh, increase, that gap narrows because this median household income mm-hmm. uh, can only support so much median house price. Right. So that that relationship's been in there for you know all the times that we've tracked both of those numbers, uh, but it uh, goes through uh, times where it's not quite parallel. Mm-hmm. My view of what the crash did was because of some of the products, it removed the median household income cap. Mm-hmm. Like because arms or interest only or negams? Is that kind of that thing? That plus, I could tell you any number for my income. Yeah, oh, yeah. Gonna, so you took that, number, that thing out and threw it out the window. So, so the now median my household income. So temporarily, for a couple years, my median household income is infinity. Right. That just makes unlimited supply, uh, demand. Unlimited buyers. Yeah. So now I have everyone in the world could buy a piece of property if they wish to. Right. And many of them wish to. Right. Many of them did. And when you have 100 buyers chasing a property instead of 10 buyers or one buyer, Mm -hmm. the price just skyrockets. Right. I can tell you that that's happened a couple different times. It's happened in the 70s, -hmm. where the spread, the traditional spread between house price and median income got 20% worse than its historic norms mm-hmm. but then median then prices froze and median income rose to get back to that traditional and, right. then, and then the market could go, legitimately go up again so something has to give the prices have to plateau until income approaches or income has to go up so fast that it allows prices to go up again in the 80s uh, and late 90s or early early 90s late 80s it happened again but it was it was like a uh, you know uh, upper twenties, and then had to, and mm-hmm. then the market had to close that gap. Well, during the height of the crisis, uh, I sat in a uh, in a meeting where we could demonstrate that that traditional gap had stretched to forty five percent. The predictions were it was going to go to fifty five, where it actually did. But we're, this is a a year before the crash. We're seeing that bubble, mm-hmm. and then historically. We knew that bubble would have to close 90% of that gap. Right. So, and at that point, the only way it could give, you just couldn't get household income to creep up that fast. So the only thing I had to give is you actually had to have value declines, which we hadn't had in the other bubbles. Mm. In the other bubbles, you had plateaus. In this, you had, it had to actually tank. Interesting. Uh, And so it gave back, the market gave back, I had to give back 50% of the 55% bubble mm-hmm. had to be given back before the market could write itself getting back to your 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 uh, primary question what could we have done differently to prevent that bubble the thing that we did wrong in my opinion is that we continued to add fuel to the fire by doing those stated income or no income loans at extremely high LTVs yep 
Because the skin in the game wasn't there. Yeah. If we could have dialed back the LTV as the bubble grew, Mm -hmm. people could still speculate on housing, but they'd have to do it with their own money. Right. And then the losses wouldn't have been lender losses. There would have been been less demand because less people had their own cash. Yeah. And... Uh, less, fewer people would have, you know, it would have uh, eliminated some of the speculators, the highly leveraged speculators. Mm-hmm. It would have been speculators that could afford to speculate with their own cash. Right, right. And then the losses that were taking place, uh, again, going back to borrower repayment behavior, the losses that were taking place would have been losses out of people's cash, not out of lenders' vaults. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing we're doing differently today that encourages me is that even though we're doing creative products, we're doing them with people that have large equity stakes in the property. Yep. So even if they are speculating on a particular investment property or even a homeowner, they're speculating with their money. Mm-hmm. They're not speculating with money I have in the vault. Right, right. Um, and people would play a lot differently in Vegas if they had their own money versus someone else's money. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's a why great, I don't That's a great point. Yeah, if you get $10 <laughs> of free play, you're like, woo. They're like, hey, give me some money. I'll bet it on black or bet it on red. I'm like, no, I'll do it when I go to Vegas. You can bet your own money. Yeah. So that's my short opinion of uh, what made prices go crazy is you, you took the cap off of median income. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I still think you could have controlled it if you you hadn't accommodated it with extremely high LTVs on that type of product. Right. So, so you think we're going to be okay? I The skin in the game makes me feel like uh, if, if people are going to take losses because of a price correction, it's going to be out of their equity, not out of their loan amount. Interesting. So, yeah, yeah. That's good. Um, so last question for you, Jerry. Uh, if you were to say to hell with underwriting, I'm going to go back to being a mortgage broker. Uh, what would you do today to, to, to try to find these kind of borrowers? Like how would you, would you buy leads? Would you, you know, call up some, some referral sources? Like wh- how would you go about getting these type of loans? Uh, I believe where the business may be going would be taking like an inbound marketing approach where, uh, you become a resource for people's questions. So long before they even think about buying a piece of real estate, they start to think about what does it even take to do that? And, hmm. and you create a, an area where people can navigate in and read, watch videos, the type of things you're doing, educate the self-educate, and then create a forum where as people get more and more educated and they realize, I think I'm ready based on these tools and the things I'm reading and I probably could afford a house Uh, and create a launching pad to where when they're ready to get pre-qualified, uh, it's easier for them to do in a, maybe an automated so way. Maybe build, you'd build a website and, and create a little place for people to read, get educated, and then once they're ready, they can do a little application like online. So you kind of do some online marketing. I, I see that. Is there any is there any uh, type of other ways you'd get it? That's that's creative, and that's I think that would work. And, and, I'm, and I'm a big fan of uh, the pre you know pre approvals. Yeah, and so. Uh, for buyers, using, right? Using yeah, using a, a platform like that of finding out how much um, the, the toughest thing about buying a piece of real estate is figuring out how to finance it. 
Yeah. Once, if you reverse that process and figure out your financing first, mm-hmm. then go find a real estate agent. Right. You're Usually be, it goes the other way around, though. Most yeah. people are like, oh, let's go house hunting this weekend, but they yeah. don't do the, the, the hard work up front. Yeah. And, and it's really not that hard work. Um, we make it easy. A lot of companies make it easy for you to come in, bring a, a handful of credit documents in and figure mm-hmm. out. Uh, based on today's rates and these programs, you could afford this. Right. And that number, then that's the time to go out and test the market and figure out uh, what can I get for that kind of money? Is it something I want to put up with? Uh, what can I do to change those numbers? That's cool. And uh, so uh, to me, being an information base for people that want to get involved and getting them involved before they fall in love with the house, mm-hmm. let's fall in love with your financing first right. and then leverage that into uh, you'll know what part of the market to be looking in and know what you can have. Awesome. Jerry, thanks so much. It's been very informative and I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you guys are looking for more content like this, we have a Fun Loans YouTube channel where we give away more tips, secrets, and origination ideas. You can also email us at info at funloans.com. And if you've made it this far, I think it's safe to say you like our content. So please subscribe, share, and send us your scenarios. Let's fund loans together.